We're going to be looking at the entirety of Psalm 22 this morning, verses 1 through 31. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and this morning it's my privilege to continue in our special Advent series. We've taken a break from our study of Mark's gospel, uh, and we are looking at a series of psalms that point us and prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. The largest book in the Bible is called Psalms, and it's a collection of songs, a collection of songs that were used in worship by the ancient Israelite people. Uh, and so as we enter a season where music is at the forefront of our minds many times, getting us in the mood for the holiday, we wanted to look at these songs written hundreds of years before Christ's birth that promised and foretold of the coming Savior. And we're going to see different aspects of his life, different aspects of his rule, different aspects of his mission highlighted in these different songs and preparing our hearts for all of the many facets that the Christmas season brings with it. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in this morning, you can slip your hand up. Alex will come down, make sure that you got one of those to help you follow along, have a copy of the text uh, and, uh, and an outline of the sermon to help you take notes. As we look at this song uh, in Psalm 22, and this morning, we land squarely on a sad song, right? As there are all kind of different songs. There are happy songs, there are sad songs, there are confusing songs, there are all sorts of different things you can hear when you turn on the radio. This morning, we land on a sad song, which might seem kind of surprising at Christmas time. But as the great philosopher Elton John once said, sad songs say so much, right? He, he's got an entire song about sad songs and why we need sad songs. And why do we need sad songs? Why do we, in a strange way, actually like sad songs? Well, because we can relate, right? We all know what it feels like to be sad. We know what it feels like to suffer. We know what it feels like to experience loss and pain and disappointment and especially when we're in one of those seasons and you turn on the radio and you hear a sad song your heart has an instant connection you can relate to what's being said it resonates with with our souls deep inside even at a level where maybe a happy song can't even get to that same level of depth but at christmas time we tend to take a break from sad songs right so think of your favorite Christmas carols, and they're usually pretty peppy, pretty joyful, pretty happy, right? We're reminded of it constantly over the radio, time and time again. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Have a holly jolly Christmas, right? Joy to the world. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Everybody's happy at Christmas time. On and on they go. You go from one station to the next, and they're always happy and smiley, and it's joy, and it's wonderful, and it's Christmas. But maybe that's not your experience. Sometimes, if you're suffering at Christmas time, or if you suffered greatly in the prior year and the scars are still very fresh as you come to this time of year, sometimes all the talk of joy and cheer at Christmas can feel plastic. It can feel fake, right? How can there be joy to the world when everything, when I just feel so wrong? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Christmas is indeed about real joy. Christmas is indeed about true joy. It's about the coming of a Savior who would redeem the world from the suffering, from the pain that we so often experience. But it didn't come in order 
to minimize sadness, right? The advent of Christ into our world, the promised Savior, wasn't going to just varnish over the sadness and the suffering that we experience, but he came to dive headlong into it, to experience it alongside us, and to bring us joy in and through it. And so as we explore these psalms, as we explore these songs, it's good this morning to sit down and look at this one in Psalm 22, one of the most devastatingly sad chapters in the entire Bible, which seems strange at Christmas time, but I'm telling you it's appropriate because Jesus didn't come in to the world to tell the world to put on a happy face. He came to, joy, to bring real joy to real people, and he didn't exempt himself from the suffering of his people, he dove headlong into it and he came out the other side. So let's read this meditation on suffering, on David's suffering, on our suffering, and ultimately on Jesus' suffering in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, and strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall, proclaim, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's God's word for us this morning. Pray with me and we'll study it together. Father, as we encounter this song and as we meditate on sadness and suffering, God, we pray that you would be near to us, that you would be a comfort and a light. And God, that as we open your word together, what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, please make us. By your grace, through your spirit, to the praise of Jesus' name we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have a song of suffering. We have a song of suffering pointing forward to a coming Savior. We just read the psalm. I think the suffering is probably rather obvious, right? Heavy stuff. Not a put on a happy face kind of song. But why would we think this is about Jesus, right? I, I didn't see Jesus' name referenced any, anywhere in there. Maybe you didn't either. So why can we say this is a promise of the experience of Christ? This is about him. How can I say that? Well, because Jesus said that. Jesus said that it was about him. And you think, maybe I don't remember that story. Well, let's go to the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. His life is leaving him. He's being surrounded by those who are jeering at him, who have delivered him up falsely, slandered him. He's being unjustly mistreated and accused. And we see in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46, this account. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're like me, and you've ever read that passage before, maybe you've wondered, like I have often wondered, why would Jesus say that? Right? Why would Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After all, it's not like his crucifixion came as a surprise. It's not like Jesus wasn't aware of, of what was going on. He, he predicted his own suffering and death repeatedly. He said, this is what must take place. It's, it's not like he was caught off guard. I, I didn't realize it was going to be this awful. right? He knew going in, praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood, asking God to take this cup from him if it were possible. Like Jesus was fully aware of what he was entering into. He did so willingly on our behalf. So why this question? Is it just an emotional expression of despair? Well, it, it is that, I think. It is that in a very real sense. But it's more than that. Jesus is saying this. When he does proclaim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would have instantly caught the attention 
of the people who were watching the scene. And especially, especially the religious leaders who put him there would hear it and their minds would go directly to this psalm, right? When they hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would think, Psalm 22. We've read it in Sabbath worship. We've taught on it in the marketplace. That's how the psalm starts. And they would start running through then in their mind the lines of the rest of the psalm. Right? So like it would be like if this happened in the modern day and Jesus was hanging up there and he said, hello darkness, my old friend. Right? Everybody wouldn't say, why is he calling out to darkness? They would say, he's, he's saying sound of silence. And you start going through the song. What's the song about? What's he proclaiming? That's the effect of what he's doing here. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People's minds, boom, right to this song. Jesus is saying, in essence, that song is about me. It's about now. Its experience is fulfilled right before your eyes. So as we read Psalm 22, we need to ask ourselves the question, what's it about? Well, it's about David, the man who wrote it, the warrior king of Israel, poet, and the suffering that he experienced, the anguish that he experienced as he spent many times in his life on the run from people who were trying to kill and betrayed by his own family. David knew what darkness looked like. So it's about David, and it's about us in as much as we share the experience of David, right? In as much as we are followers of Christ who experience suffering and pain unjustly, feeling like God is distant from us, it's about us. It's about what we face as we go through life. But most of all, it's about Jesus. And it's about the suffering that he experienced in order to bring us into God's family. So as we read the psalm, as we study it, let that be your context. Let that be the framework by which we look at what's going on. It's about David, it's about us, but ultimately it's, be, it's about Jesus because Jesus claimed it was about him. Jesus pointed everyone's minds to say, this is fulfilled here and now. So what is this experience like? If this psalm gives us a window to the inner life and experience of our Savior, what's, what do we see in the window? Well, it's an experience about somebody who has the utmost faith in God, the utmost trust in him, who yet finds himself inexplicably inexplicably forsaken by God, near to God, full of faith in God, and yet forsaken. Faith in the God who he throws everything upon and yet finds himself cast out, forsaken by him. So this is why when we look at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't just the first time this popped into the mind of the psalmist. Right? This isn't the first cry of his heart because we see here, he asks, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry by day, you don't answer. I cry by night and I find no rest. This has been going on for some time. The psalmist feels hung out to dry. He's experiencing suffering and he comes to God And he finds silence. And he keeps crying out by night. And he finds more silence. And he wonders why God is so far away. Why is this perplexing to the psalmist? Why is he stunned to find God quiet and silent and distant when he's in the pit of suffering? Well, because he's known God. He knows what God is like. He's experienced the goodness of God. Look at verse 3. 
So he says in verses 1 and 2, here's my experience. I'm forsaken. I'm crying out. You're silent. You're neglecting. You're forsaking. Verse 3, but yet you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted. You delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. I, I know these things to be true. So why does my life look like this? I know you're good. I know you're holy. I know you're righteous. I've read the stories. I've heard my fathers tell me about all you have done. This is no skeptic. This is no cynic. This is a man who has trusted deeply in God. He knows that God is good and faithful. He knows he's enthroned on the praises of his people. He knows his ancestors were delivered when they cried out to God. He believes all of these things, and yet he's not experiencing them. He's experiencing a profound disconnect between what he believes and knows to be true of God and what his life's experience is telling him. And isn't this one of the biggest causes of doubt in our lives? When we find what we know not matching what we're experiencing in life. If God is good, and if God is God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why is there so much pain and suffering in my life? So here's the crazy part. That experience causes us to doubt God's goodness. It causes us sometimes to even doubt God's existence. And yet that is an experience that Jesus himself had. That pressure cooker of suffering and a seemingly distant God that crushes us many times into doubt and unbelief, that same cooker Jesus went into. Jesus experienced, God himself experienced the very circumstances that cause us to doubt the existence of God himself. Your God is not distant and disconnected and out there. But he knows what it's like to feel hung out to dry. To feel distant. And it's important enough, listen to this, it's important enough that we understand that Jesus went through that it's important enough that God wrote it in a song nearly a thousand years before Jesus was born and had Jesus from the cross point us to it and say, this is what I'm going through. This is my experience. This is why ultimately David wrote this song. Because there will be times in your life when you have faith and yet feel forsaken. And you need to know that Jesus was in that same boat, that Jesus walked that same road. The God that you serve is able to sympathize with what you are going through. Now, whereas verses 4 and 5 highlight the faithfulness of God to rescue the psalmist's ancestors, right? And you, our fathers, trusted and you delivered them. They cried. They were rescued. They trusted. They were not put to shame. You showed you were faithful. Verses 6 through 8 highlight that God is not doing the same for the psalmist. He's not experiencing the same thing that he's heard from others. He, rather, in verse 6, is scorned. He's mocked, verse 7. He's despised, back in verse 6 once again. The people who observe his plight are not rushing to help, but they're making him into a laughingstock. 
He is an occasion for jest, for sport. And what is their chief taunt in verse 8? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Hey, look at Mr. Holy Pants, who always loves God. What's God doing for you now? Where is he at? And this was precisely the experience that Jesus had as he hung on the cross. Right? Luke 23, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. If God really loves him, he'll save him. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him so much. Why is this? Why would God leave someone to be taunted, abandoned, forsaken? I mean, surely they must deserve it, right? That, that I think, is what we assume when we see this happening in the world. We tend to believe in karma, whether we call it that or not, but we believe in the notion that when someone suffers and God leaves them hung out to dry, surely they must deserve it for something. Maybe when you experience that, you think, surely I must be being punished for something that I did. God, God is, would not leave me like this if I didn't do something to deserve it. Or when we see someone else suffering, we think, well, surely it must be their fault. And when we see someone doing well, God must be pleased with them. Right? That's how the scales work, right? But that's not the psalmist's experience. Because here he is being mocked, scorned, neglected, abused. And yet in verse 9, what does he say? Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You've been my God. Be not far from me, because trouble is near, and there is none to help. He highlights just how near God has always been. He uses about the most intimate language you can imagine, this imagery of a mother and her baby, the imagery of birth, of nursing, to say, God, we've always been right there. You've always been with me. You've always been there to comfort me, to sustain me, to love me. So don't be far from me now, because trouble's close. I need you closer. And there's nobody to help me. You ever had that experience? You ever had the experience of feeling near to God and yet neglected by God? I mean, suffering comes in many different flavors. All of us know what it is to make a terrible decision and reap the consequences of it, right? All of us have felt that you know, we did something stupid or evil or wrong and bad things happen, right? Consequences for sin happen. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. We're talking about situations times when you have done nothing wrong. You find yourself hung out to dry by everyone around you, scorned, neglected, mocked, mistreated. You go to cry out to God knowing I, I, I'm suffering unjustly. I'm experiencing injustice and wrong. God, help me. And it feels like God's a million miles away. Nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be found. And you feel like the psalmist. My pain is right here. It's close. So why are you way out there? I need you closer. Psalm 22, 
wants you to know that Jesus had that experience too. He knows exactly what it's like. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, we believe in a God who is one God in three persons, who have had perfect fellowship for eternity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship and harmony and fellowship with one another forever. You can't get more near than that. And yet Jesus is neglected, is forsaken, is cut off. He could not have a more intimate relationship with his father. No one ever has. And yet he found himself cut off. He finds himself forsaken, neglected, abused. He did nothing to, to deserve the pain being inflicted on him by man. He did nothing to deserve the wrath being poured out on him by God. He suffered the ultimate injustice. No one has ever experienced a greater injustice than Jesus Christ. And when he cried out to his father, with whom he had been in perfect fellowship for all eternity, he found him inexplicably and painfully silent. Psalm 22 gives us a window into the fact that the Son of God himself experienced being near and yet being neglected by his Father. So that when we have that same experience, we'll know we're not alone. And unless we're confused about just how bad a spot the psalmist is in, verses 12 through 18 get very specific, right? It's bad. It's really bad. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Jump down to verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. This imagery of he's surrounded by ferocious beasts. Surrounded by strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan is a region that was particularly known for its cattle. So, you know, think of if you've ever watched bullfighting and you see these massive creatures running people over, like you're surrounded by those. That's the imagery he's calling forth here. He's surrounded in verse 16 by a, a group of dogs, which was a derogatory slang for evildoers, people who hated God and, and lived and acted accordingly. So he's hemmed in by vicious opponents on all sides. No hope of escape. No way out. Verses 14 and 15 give us a window into his inner condition, right? Verses 14 and 15, physically, he is spent. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's poured out like a glass of water, empty, pulled apart, disjointed. His strength is like a dry piece of clay that's been fired in an oven. He can't speak. He's covered in dust. And his emotional state is no better. Verse 14, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His inner strength is just melted away. It's shapeless. It's soft. This is an image of an individual who has been completely devastated in every way. Physically, he's spent emotionally he's spent and guess what socially he's being mocked he's being ridiculed 
He's being gloated over. Think of the insult of being mocked and ridiculed when absolutely helpless. He is crushed. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had this experience of feeling completely and utterly defeated? Like, if rock bottom is here, you can't imagine being any lower. Has there been a time in your life when you felt crushed? Jesus certainly did. Jesus had this experience. And just in case the language isn't striking enough, some of the specific details here are exactly what happened to him on the cross, right? If we look down at verse 16, dogs encompass me, company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Christ's hands and feet pierced in crucifixion. His enemies are gloating over them. Onlookers are gambling for the rights of his clothing. The Roman soldiers, who gets to take his cloak? Imagine, remember we said, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's designed to draw our minds to this psalm. The religious leaders who hated him would have known this psalm. Can you imagine them going through in their minds the verses and they get to this point and you wonder, did any of them think, oh my. It couldn't be more striking. It couldn't be more specific. Jesus was crushed. This devastating text is about his experience on the cross. Absolutely devastated. And no matter what you have suffered in this life, and I know your stories, I know some of you have suffered greatly, dramatically. No matter what you have suffered in this life, I can promise you that Jesus suffered more. That Jesus suffered more. More And the point of saying that isn't to make it a contest of like, who's had a more raw deal, you or Jesus. And the point of saying that isn't to be like, Jesus had an even worse deal than you did and he held up, so buck it up, pull up your socks and let's get to business here. No, the point of saying that is this. Jesus knows. Jesus understands. Jesus sympathizes with your suffering with your pain, with your plight. You ever have that experience where somebody is trying to be sympathetic and they say, you know, I know how you feel. And inside you're thinking, no, you don't. Don't waste my time with that. You don't know how I feel. Jesus knows. He really does. This is not some distant counselor, some fake friend trying to give you a platitude. He knows and understands, and that changes everything. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows us. 
He knows that experience inside and out. And that makes all the difference. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say because Jesus can sympathize with us, we should buckle down and try harder. It says we can approach God with confidence and ask for help. And that is the solution to being crushed. That is how we find Jesus in these verses here. As we get down to verse 19, he is crushed, but he is also crying out. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You've done it before. You can do it again. Please, God, save me. From the depths, he cries out for God's help. Your greatest danger in life, your greatest danger in life is not that you'll suffer. Your greatest danger is that you will suffer and your suffering will turn you inward on yourself and away from God. That's the dangerous place to be. Are you crushed this morning? Maybe this this psalm is hitting very close to home right now. Jesus' coming reminds us that being crushed is not the end of the story. That's not where the psalm stops. Cry out to God. Right? The temptation of suffering is to turn away to think it's pointless, it's hopeless. I need to look at myself. I need to meditate on my sufferings, on my pains, because that somehow makes it feel a little bit better, right? To just dwell and and have that, that experience of feel sorry for myself. Jesus shows us when we experience that depths of suffering, we need to look not in, but out, up. Cry out to God. Rest on, cling to what you know to be true, right? He's had every reason experientially to say, This is pointless. This is hopeless. And yet, he continues to cry out. Way back in verses 1 and 2, it was day by day I cry and you don't listen. At night I call and you do not answer. So what's he do in verse 19? Oh Lord, don't be far off. Come quickly to my aid. He's still crying out. Crushed and yet crying out. You can have confidence that because of Jesus' suffering, you will receive help in your time of need. You will receive help in your time of need. So cry out to your Father when you suffer. What's keeping you from praying this morning? What's the obstacle in your way? Is it doubt? Like the psalmist, remind yourself of how God has shown himself faithful in the past. Remind yourself of what you've seen, how he's given you help and aid and strength how he's delivered you from difficult situations in your past. Remind yourself of his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness to those who have gone before you, right? In you, our fathers trusted and they were delivered. They were not put to shame. Remind yourself of the people you know who have experienced God's salvation, his deliverance. Read your Bible and run through those instances of people who have experienced God's grace in the midst of deep suffering. At our men's Bible and breakfast yesterday, we did a little case study with the prophets at James uh, uh, prodding. And what did we find when we looked at the prophets? All of them suffered miserably. 
all of them had this experience of pain, of disappointment, of despair. And yet God was near to them. God sustained them. We admire them because of how God brought them through darkness and suffering. So remember that. When you doubt, can God do anything for me? Can he give me any sort of grace and salvation? Maybe what keeps you from praying is the fear that you don't know what to pray for. You feel so spun around, so tied in knots, you don't even know which way's up. And you don't know what you should ask for. Remember the words of Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right, and the verse right after that is our favorite one to quote in suffering. I know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to Christ Jesus. So these verses, 26 and 27, contextually are about that experience of suffering. When you're in deep and you don't know what to say, you don't know what to ask for, just cry out to God. And he'll figure it out. And he will, he says, because the Spirit lives within us, the Spirit is interceding for us with exactly what we need. And God speaks that language. And he understands those groanings. The Puritan author John Bunyan said, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Cry out. Don't let anything stand in the way. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It can be so simple. But don't turn inward. Turn upward when you're suffering, when you're crushed. And what hope do we have? So when we have that experience of the bottom and we realize, I still know this to be true. I'm going to cry out to my father. What can we expect? What hope do we have? Well, it's here in verse 22. That the psalm and Jesus ring out loud and clear with a voice of hope. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Why? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when we cried to him. He starts this declaration of praise that he will give and that he will spread to all people in response to God's deliverance, in response to his salvation. I'm going to praise you everywhere. I'm going to shout it from the mountaintops. And I want you to notice as we look at these verses from 22 to 31, look at the language that is used. It's not the language of if. This is not a bargaining session. And we've had those, right? I'm sure you have like I have. God, if you just get me out of this, here's what I'll do. No, no, no. This is not the language of if. This is the language of will and shall, right? I will tell of your name to my brothers. He has not despised or abhorred. He has not hidden his face. He heard. 25, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. This is certainty. This is the language of sure deliverance. Now, where on earth does that come from? 
That doesn't seem to fit with what we've just been seeing. The promise is the afflicted will be restored. Those who seek God will find rescue and they'll praise him. Why can we have that hope? Because Jesus was crushed beyond what any human being has ever endured. But yet it culminated in a victory and a hope beyond imagination. Jesus defeated death itself, right? When we look at the cross, when we use the cross as a symbol of our faith, it's not because we glory in death, it's because we glory in death defeated. Christ died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose victorious from the grave. And we are here this morning because of that. He defeated death. So what's left? Death is the great equalizer. It's the enemy of all people. It's the one thing we cannot untangle. We we can't solve. We can't figure out. Jesus defeated it. Rose victorious from the tomb. And his victory is not confined to just him. It's not even confined to just him and his immediate circle around him. But it extends to every person on the planet. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus' victory extends to everybody. The fruits of his labor go out to everybody on the planet. Think of those verses that we just read. Every race, every nation, every people, every social class, every generation, all experience the blessings and the benefits that come from Jesus Christ. Verse 31 is fulfilled in us. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's why we're here. Verse 31 is fulfilled in us because verses 1 through 30 were fulfilled in him. That's how this goes. That's the message. What's the ultimate word to the suffering during Advent, during Christmas? It's that in a world of suffering, pain, and death, a promised Savior came to experience suffering, pain, and death to triumph over suffering, pain, and death, and to to extend a sure hope to all people everywhere for all time who are experiencing suffering, pain, and death. That's what Christmas is about. That's what we're waiting for in the season of Advent, placing our hope in, our sure trust. The promise of Christmas The message of Christmas is a promise of sure and living hope. Not just a whitewashing over the suffering and a glossing over things, but it's a hope that is here because of suffering, because of pain, through and in it. Author Anne Graham Lotz said, if God can bring blessing from the broken body of Jesus, 
and glory from something that's as obscene as the cross, then he can bring blessing from my problems and my pain and my unanswered prayer. I I just have to trust him. If you find yourself singing a song of suffering this Advent season, don't mute the song and sing something else. Don't change the station. Don't pretend it's not there. Think it'll just go away. Remember Jesus' song of suffering. And remember how Jesus' song of suffering ends. And sing yours accordingly. Fixate on the hope that you have because of what he endured on your behalf. So what are the things in your life today? What are the things in your life in the past that have caused or are causing you to feel forsaken and neglected by God? What are the situations you face today that tempt you to feel this way, to want to look up to the heavens and cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is everybody else getting delivered and I'm left here? What is it for you? Is it something from the past? Is it a fear about the future? Is it a difficulty you're experiencing right now? Identify what are those things. And when you're crushed, when you're pressed down, do you allow that to turn you inward looking to yourself? Or do you cry out to God, trusting that he's still there, he still hears, he's still good? When you have a conflict between what you're experiencing and what you know to be true about God, what do you go with? Who do you listen to? Because our heads and our hearts are full of voices, right? We got a lot of voices talking to us from the outside, but I don't know about you, I got plenty on the inside and not like the crazy person kind, but like the, this is what life is like. What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? What do I listen to? How do I live? Cry out to God. Remember what he's done. Remember what you know to be true about him, what he's demonstrated time and time again. Have you understood what the hope of Jesus' life and death and resurrection means for your own suffering? Have you taken the message of Jesus, the gospel, out of the abstract and, and put legs on it and understood where it meets you right where you're at, what it means for your suffering, pain, and disappointments? Have you un- ever understood that because he experienced suffering he didn't deserve, that frankly you and I did, we can have hope that we will be delivered from all of our suffering. There is an end coming, and it's a good one. And in the meantime, we have the hope of a good friend and a good father who loves us, who cares for us, and has experienced what we are experiencing. He's not cold. He's not distant. When you ultimately go down to the dust, when your life strength drains away from you, Where's your hope? Why not put it in the one person in human history who defeated death itself? That's a hope I can get behind. That's a savior I need. And I bet you need it too. You're going to sing a lot of happy songs. 
over the next few weeks. You're going to hear them on the radio. You're going to hear the jingle bells. You're going to see the smiling faces on TV. And to the extent that you can join in, that's fantastic. But in those moments when it just doesn't line up, when the inner experience doesn't match all the outward expressions that you see, remember, Christmas is for you. Christmas is for that. It matters so much that we understand this truth. It matters so much that God recorded it in a song a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. That says it's kind of a big deal. Suffering and pain feel like a big deal. You need to know that God thinks they're a big deal too. And he's not hiding. He's not averting his eyes. He entered into it with you and he continues to do so. And so when you experience pain, when you are crushed, cry out and remember your savior who was a victim and yet victorious over all things. Let's pray together.